Listener Production. I found the Commonwealth Games quite useful, and it's the only time you get all those people together to do business deals without China and America and, you know, the big ones in the room. G'day, I'm Scott Phillips, The Motley Fool's Chief Investment Officer in Australia, and welcome to The Good Oil. Now, if you're not familiar with the phrase, and you should be by now, giving someone the good oil is giving them the good stuff, the important stuff, and the real stuff. And you know that's what we do with this podcast. We talk to entrepreneurs, executives, and experts, the people who know what's going on, and the people who make things happen. Today's guest, as is often the case, is a bit of all three. He is, of course, the man known as the airport economist. He's also Professor Tim Harcourt. Tim, g'day and welcome back to The Good Oil. Good to be with you again, Scott. Mate, I really appreciate you. You're a return guest and I always thoroughly enjoy your insights. By the way, listeners, if you're not following Tim on the socials and not reading the stuff that he's writing, you really, really should be. He's a very thoughtful guy. He is, uh, (laughs) mate, I reckon, I, I said this on Twitter the other day, I reckon you have the best political slash economic uh, uh, Rolodex, to use the old-fashioned term, and memory for quotes and comments. Every time there's a, there's a there's some sort of comment of, or a discussion about the past, you've always got a quote from one of the movers and shakers of the time. So-and-so said this about such and such. You're, uh, you're very, very good with that, mate, and it makes it always, always entertaining. Oh, thanks, Scott. Some of them are... It's funny what thing, things people remember. You know, people remember... Melbourne Cup winners or Premiership winners, and yeah, yeah. I tend to remember political quotes. Of them. <laughs> well, I think, mate, look, it's it's probably a relatively niche uh, niche. So you probably you probably got that space to yourself, which is which is always <laughs> a always a good thing. I'm going to talk to you a bit about some of your other stuff uh, you've been doing recently, but I wanted to speak to you mostly about. So the economics of sport. Now, I, I, I do know, and I, I did have an inkling of this, but you confirmed to me just for recording, there is a new book coming out. I don't know if you want to talk anything about that specifically. Uh, do you want to give that a bit of a, a pre-plug, mate, or is that still under wraps? Yeah, no, that's uh, that's fine, uh, Scott. Um, yeah, I've got a new book coming out called Footynomics, The Economics of Sport. It's principally because Australia is very unusual that we've got four codes of football, you know, soccer, Aussie rules, Rugby league, rugby union, and each devotee calls it football or footy. That's true. Uh, uh, you know, which is interesting. And then I've been, yeah. I mean, in my um, airport economist sort of travels, I've found I've been to a lot of Olympics, a lot of World Cups, and the sort of schmoozing of business around sporting events seems to have some economic value. So sort of my book will be on the economics of sport. I call it footynomics because it's such a big deal in Australia having, having different codes, but it's really about the economics of sport globally and, and sports diplomacy. I love it, mate. And it's a fascinating, fascinating area because, of course, the Matildas fell so crushingly short uh, despite doing their absolute best, mate, making the whole nation proud. Fell just short of making the uh, making the final of the Women's World Cup. Uh, but it is, by the way, speaking, let's, let's start with this. Apparently, Channel 7 paid $5 million for the yeah. rights to the Women's World Cup. And they bargain, had two, well, two of the best... Certainly, since the Olympics, the two most watched TV shows uh, in 23 years, uh, half the country at one point apparently was uh, was believed to have watched the game uh, against England. It's not a bad return on investment for uh, a little bit of a little bit of sports rights. Yeah, well, first of all, Scott, I agree with you. Well done to the Matildas. I mean, get in the in the last four of a World Cup, not too shabby. Uh, and I think everyone agrees that England are a pretty good team and. Uh, they play a bit dirty, but also they didn't they? Well coached, don't they? So 
no disgrace. Uh, and, um, yeah, gee, well played Channel 7. I mean, they really, <laughs> you know, I don't know who they went up against. I don't know yeah. if they went up against them, but what a, what a, what a performance. Oh, oh, mate, can you imagine having those rights again? I, 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 plenty of, company of um, channels kicking themselves to the point where I know this isn't super unusual, but there were the, the other networks would fall over themselves to pull programming that night. They literally dragged everything out of it they possibly could, ran repeats of things and just got, got right out of the way. Yeah, I don't think the Gruen transfer had many viewers that night. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the previous, the Monday night, uh, the, the, you know, the game against uh, Denmark, that could got good ratings too. I mean, you're up against Inspector Morse or something on Monday nights, but still, <laughs> I mean, still, people did tune in. And I think there's something about Aussies, even if you don't follow soccer, if you're leaguey or Aussie rules or cricket, whatever you follow, if Australia's going well, we'll get behind them. That's you absolutely know? true. <laughs> the green and gold, it could be tiddlywinks, taekwondo, yes, yes. <laughs> women's soccer, men's soccer, you know, whatever you want to call it. Uh, we're, we're there if Australia's the chance. So I think that's um, it's been great that everyone's just put put aside their usual preferences and you know squabbles and, and got behind the Matildas in the in the big one. Mate, can I say though that's you're absolutely right, but I reckon it's, it feels to me a little bit bigger than that. Honestly, I, the the sheer number of people watching the the groundswell of support. Um, you're right. We'd absolutely we'd absolutely get behind Tiddlywinks if that was on on TV, but not in these. These massive, massive numbers. Now you're you, you feel as sports economics, not just sports, not just economics. But what what do you put that down to? It's just an observer, a keen observer. Um, what have the Matildas got, or, or what do they bring to the table that maybe surpassed most other things in that in that context? Look, I think it was the first um, time uh, for a long time we'd had a, we'd had a big big tournament at home. Mm. First time since Sydney Olympics, we've had a really big event. Um, so I think that was part of it. I think um, women's sport sort of got a bit shortchanged for many years and now it's going very well and people are investing in it and something a lot of people want to show they want to get behind it, I think. I noticed this, um, I was talking to Craig Foster about, uh, you know, the, the sort of industrial relations side of ladies' associations and, of course, the guys and the girls in soccer negotiate together you know, for equal pay, base pay. I didn't know that. But okay. they thought that was very important. And um, I noticed I was in India interviewing Matthew Hayden and Lisa Stelica in cricket too. Lisa Stelica said that Matt Hayden was one of the blokes that really got into helping the women get better pay in cricket. So I, I think with women's and, and men's sport, um, they often they often do things together. And, and I've noticed even in um, yeah, my old footy back in Adelaide, Adelaide Uni, uh, a lot of the fathers want their daughters to play for the t- same team. And so I think you saw a lot of dads taking their daughters and a lot of you know, mothers taking their sons. And I think it's I think the soccer's been about um, we support both girls and boys playing. And, uh, and so I think right across the board, I think um, people want to show it's not about, you know, war of the genders or war of this. We're actually all together. And uh, I, I felt that a bit. I think a lot of men wanted to say they support the Matildas too. They weren't just saying it to be thinking they should. I think they generally do. That seemed to be quite different. That's a good point. Let's get to then the, the economics of sport or, or the economics of footy, footynomics as you've as you've called it. Uh, but I want to I want to get in there via something you've written more recently. You wrote you should you should be uh, trademarking Tim the 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 suffix nomics because you've also written Matilda nomics, uh, which came out on the sixteenth of August, only a couple of days before we were recording this on the eighteenth. Uh, so we don't know whether the girls are going to win yet on Saturday night. We hope they desperately will take out that third place uh, position. But um, tell us about 
Matildonomics, mate. What 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 have you learned? What what do we need to know? What have we found out about the the economics of of women's soccer and 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 the Matildas in particular? Well, yeah, there was growth. I mean, I remember writing a piece in 2017 about how the Matildas got fifteen thousand at Penrith, and that was yeah. a big deal because they got yeah, more right. in the rugby league that weekend. Yeah. And I thought that was a big deal then, and that now you're talking seventy five, eighty thousand that they're getting. So I think just the amazing growth, and even um, even just at the quarterfinals, um, they'd already passed the uh, uh, the highest high water mark for spectators, which was Canada twenty fifteen. I think even at the quarterfinals, they'd had one point six million spectators, which was nineteen percent higher than Canada's. It was one point four, and that was even before the quarterfinals. So. Crowds are huge. TV TV broadcast rights, as we say, were were amazing. So probably you know an exponential growth story, and, and that's why uh, you know any problems with the sport, which you know we alluded to before, I think could probably be taken care of because you know the growth is there. I do like looking at sport through economic lens, mate. Not even not, not I don't even necessarily mean money lens, or that's part of it, but the discipline of economics, the the way economists look at the world, think about. The I'll say transactions. I don't, again, I don't mean I don't mean necessarily money, although money is clearly the the key part of that. But the the trade offs, the the way these things come about, the the choices that people make and and players make, administrators make uh, the whole the whole thing. Um, I'm trying to think about whether there's a, a watershed moment. I mean, we all want to think that this is somehow the materials have arrived and there is there is a new there's a new thing going on. I'm sure there are examples of where we thought that might or did happen and then kind of fell backwards. Um, other times where there were genuinely a new a new ceiling or sorry, a new floor, I should say, and then kind of jumping off from there. Is there a sense from 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 economics, from your study, uh, from the work you've done about what needs to happen for these things to be sustaining versus flash in the pan? I think of the Olympics every four years. You know, we're all fencing experts all of a sudden. I'm javelin experts, and uh, you know, and we and we get into the, the synchronized diving, and then all of a sudden, you know, uh, the gymnastics, and then and then we just kind of leave it behind and come back in four years' time. Even when we win gold medals, some things kind of become their own, you know, work under their own steam. Others fall away again. Is there any sense of, of where the Matildas are? Interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, because Kathy Freeman won the race. We didn't all become runners, did we? Exactly, exactly. Yeah, we didn't win many athletics medals. <laughs> I remember 30 years ago, people said basketball was going to take over Australia. Oh, that's right, yes. You know, that, the big yeah, basketball, that didn't happen, did it? Um, no. um I mean, the thing, I mean, think about footynomics. Think about sports like Soccer's the world game and rugby to some extent. Rugby league and rug- and Aussie rules are very domestic. Now, that means that, of course, well, then the world game's going to, you know, have great strength. But in some ways it doesn't because you think about the A-League and the, uh, you know, the women's league. Um, if you're any good now, you go to Chelsea or Barcelona or, or uh, you know, Real Madrid. And same in basketball. You're any good, you go to the NBA. And so that means that really your domestic leads, people coming back for superannuation or, or, or young kids, you know. Whilst it is true, NRL, AFL, cricket, so far you, you see the best in the world in Australia. So I think that, that's, that, that's got some economic implications. The other economic implication I find very interesting, uh, Scott, is the expansion of teams in Australia, professional sports teams. The AFL is what, up to 18, plus Tassie, Plus another NRL's got the Dolphins. They're going to probably have Papua New Guinea. We've had the A League, and you double them all because now the women have all their own. That's right. Yes, yeah. right. That's a lot of sports, professional sports teams exploding. Now, do we have enough sponsorship dollars? Do we have enough um, 
you know, grounds. I remember I was talking to Sarah Walsh from the, the Football Association who's um, talking about Legacy 23. You know, she reckons there'll be, you know, 400,000 new girls playing soccer now, but we don't have enough pitches for them or change rooms or so on. So so there's a bit of a demand and supply issue there. Um, and the last thing I reckon is interesting, Scott, about uh, sport is that the way you design competitions, um, yeah, businesses want to kill the competition. In sport, you actually want them there and you give them draft picks and you give them <laughs> yeah, that's right. calorie yeah. caps. Yeah. yeah, A lot of yeah. socialism in sport, isn't there? <laughs> well, it is. You're right. I mean, equality or, or, or relative equality makes for a much more interesting game rather than the top three teams smashing everybody else every year because they've got the most money, yeah. Yeah, well, it's interesting. There was a, there was a famous um, Art Modell, a famous National Football League American football owner who used to say, during the week, we are the biggest fat cat Republicans, you know, capitalists. But when it comes to football, we're all socialists. <laughs> I think that's just about that's right. right. That's just about right. I like it. Yeah, yeah. Mate, um, so let's, let's, let's put some colours to the mask for a second then. You talked about uh, your Adelaide uh, footy background. Mm. I know that uh, that since arriving in Sydney, you have uh, clearly adopted the best uh, sporting team in, in the country, certainly in the NRL, in the Sydney Roosters. I know you're, you're a Roosters <laughs> fan as a young bloke, which is uh, much to your credit, mate. So uh, Thank you. That, that, should, that should count my, for my, you. My, oh, I'm from Adelaide. My grandfather was from Bondi. Oh, there you go. Okay, so a bit of a return to form. Yeah, so it's re- returning to my roots. So <laughs> my grandfather's name was, I think I told you, it was Kopel Harkovitz. He was a, a Jewish origins and he wanted to join the Bondi Surf Club and he couldn't get in as Harkovitz, yeah. so he yeah. changed it to Harcourt. So he went from the Goldbergs to the Icebergs. But he was a, a tri-colours man. He was a Bondi yeah, guy. He, he, knew, he, he, he lived in Bondi and Paddington. He grew up with Victor Trumper. He knew all the all the greats, Dave Brown and so on, of the the tricolours as they with them were. So I've got roosters in my jeans, and also my team in Adelaide and North Adelaide. They're the roosters. And, oh right, okay. Uh, and I don't know if you know Peter Moscat, the late Peter Moscat. He was head of the Rugby League Players Association when I was at the ACTU. He was a hooker for the roosters in the seventies. So I've sort of had. Lots of reasons to go for for the Roosters. It was it was meant to be good return mate. on investment. I've got to say, they won four premierships. <laughs> yeah, they have. Well, yeah. mate, I was uh, yes, I I went through a, a very large uh, amount of my life. I I hadn't um, Roosters hadn't won a competition in, in my living memory for well up until what two thousand three, I think it was. So it was a long it was a long wait for me as well. So let's let's go with that then and take that back because I want to talk about some of the. The, the footy, you, you, on one hand, you're right about, well, you're definitely right about the fact that money helps to to push out a lot of the stuff that, that would otherwise happen in, in sport. On the other hand, when you talk about those four codes, and this is back to footynomics, there's four codes, uh, effectively, I won't call it eight codes, but, you know, four, four men's codes and then the, the appropriate women's uh, teams on each. Um, in a in a world where everything is moving further and further to scale, everything's you know we're getting fewer and bigger, whether it's airlines or supermarkets or petrol stations or everything else, and then we've got in sport a very 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 big parochial often um, supporter base. Uh, you know, in certain states and certain cities and certain parts of certain states, um, very 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 different um, things going on there. We've seen media companies become national. We've seen um, supermarket chains. You know, Woolies was Woolies and there was Safeway in Victoria. They've become national. C- can four codes 
reasonably survive in a world where things are tending towards he with the most toys wins. At some point, you know, rugby union is kind of hanging on desperately. Uh, soccer is, has has been knocking on the door for years and decades and trying to get the promise of of rugby league and, and AFL. If, if you forecast this forward, Matt, can there be four equally or moderately successful codes, or, or does it have to tend to to one or two? I think there will be. There will, I think it's always going to be four codes. I think maybe the numbers of clubs might have to be rationalised. I think that might be an issue. What's interesting to me is, I mean. You know, football clubs, we think they're big, but they're not really as enterprises, as, as you'd know. They're really not-for-profit organisations. They, I mean, the AFL gets the money from the TV rights and distributes them, really. So the, was, the AFL wants to put a team in Tasmania, can, as we've seen, with a bit of help from Albanese and... and correct, correct, a stadium and exactly, yes. Yeah. Uh, but, but, but that, so they can. So at the end of the day, they're not-for-profit. So at the end of the day, you get TV rights, you get attendances, and you decide what you're going to do with the money. And... Um, I think it's probably it's. I think the competition between the codes is healthy. A lot of my um, English friends say, "I don't know why you have four codes here. You should abolish all the rest and just have soccer." <laughs> and then the Socceroos and the Matildas would be the best. And I think I don't think they would because I think the fact that you do have competition for athletic talent actually makes all of them strong. I think, uh, and it's better for the sports consumer that there be four codes. So this idea that you knock a few off and that'll solve your problem, well, it won't. Uh, and uh, ultimately, um, ultimately, it probably um, probably keeps the sports people that run the sports a bit more uh, entrepreneurial. I mean, look at netball used to have the women's sport to itself, didn't it? Netball, pretty much that, yeah. You know, yeah. You know like a huge participation, run by yep. women, coached yep. by women, commentators, no doubt. No, you know, um, but now they're they're struggling with sponsorship because you got women's soccer. And and AFL and, and and rugby league and union. So so it's interesting to see to what extent that's got that's made netball have to fight pretty hard commercially and and and, and do a lot of innovative things. That being said, man, I wouldn't mind uh, rugby soccer or rugby league take a bit of a foothold in in New Zealand because uh, rugby union is a religion over there, and we haven't won a Bledisloe in twenty years as a result. So they could probably do some competition over there domestically too. <laughs> drag a couple of their players to do go and do something else for a change. Um, mate, can we can we talk a little bit about that not for profit element of it? I uh, I don't want to drag you into into controversial waters necessarily, but I've I've been fascinated by. These are not-for-profit entities where, yeah, the, the CEO gets paid more if, if he or she does a good job and gets more TV rights and gets more people watching the game. So there's there's internal KPIs. But I am kind of fascinated a little bit and maybe maybe um, discomforted a little bit too by the way not-for-profits kind of end up being... They, they take they take the best of, of the, the kind of the for-profit model and, and competition, that kind of stuff. But we kind of end up with these massive, you know, leagues clubs with with eighteen gazillion poker machines, and and the idea of you know more TV rights and more TV dollars must be better because somehow that just makes them more successful. When talking to the players anyway, the leagues themselves don't really benefit. Is there is there too much? Because we have been socialist on weekend and capitalist during the week. Is there too much of that kind of embracing of? of the, the traditional business model, as in the capital B business model, rather than kind of getting on with making the sport the best it can be, you know, and maybe you do have to give up some money every now and again to do things that are better for the game, not just for the, quote, business or product, as they call it these days, or industry, as we hear it being regularly called. Uh, what, what's your take on on that kind of challenge from both ends? You know, I, th- I think that's right, Scott. It's interesting to what extent 
they said, um, like the AFL, for instance, I don't want to pick on the AFL, but the instance, you know, the AFL said, look, we've got to get a foothold into the Gold Coast and Greater Western Sydney. Let's just shove money at it. Uh, and then Tassie was sort of left on the vine. A, a state that loved Aussie rules was sort of left on the vine. And only now have they realised, oh, look, we've got to protect our game and protect our social infrastructure. So I think that's right, and I think they do have to govern the game that way. Um, and although they're not for profits, they've got some pretty pretty <laughs> hard-nosed negotiators. I mean, Peter Volandi's is a yeah. pretty, pretty tough yeah. cookie, right? Uh, and Gil McLaughlin, very good negotiator. So uh, there's no doubt that the people at the charge of these sports are are pretty tough because they're – I mean, you know, look, I worked at the ACTU wherever I wanted to be Prime Minister. Bill Kelty ended, <laughs> ended up an AFL commissioner, which I reckon yeah, is probably, right. probably a <laughs> more, more powerful job sometimes in the, in the country. It's pretty much that, right? Good the captain of the Australian cricket team or an AFL commissioner or maybe Prime Minister is a, is, is a bronze medal. Um, where do... Um, when we think about footynomics, we think about think about Matildanomics. Um, what, what is the... What is, is there an optimum business model for a not-for-profit sport? Is there? Is there a? Is there, if you're sitting there and they sort of Tim, come and come and advise us on how we should structure our sport, the sort of KPIs we should set, the way we balance the health of the game versus the money from the game versus the you know all of those things. Um, how do you have it's almost a balanced scorecard kind of idea, which is a bit of an old-fashioned term these days. But what? How would you think about advising them as an economist, not necessarily a uh, you know not 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 for the money side of it again, but for the the idea of that that behavioural psychology trade-off mentality. Um, how should the sport be run differently, better? Uh, what are they doing well? Well, I mean, obviously, growth of the game is is what what uh, the football association is looking at with Legacy Twenty Three. I'm always fascinated. I mean, my, my my kid plays junior cricket and footy, and I reckon my the footy fees for my son to play for the Maroubra Saints Aussie Rules Footy Club is two hundred bucks a year, and Randwick cricket's about the same two hundred, maybe three hundred. You get a hundred back from New South Wales government. I've heard soccer people paying a thousand bucks or two thousand bucks. What's going on there? They, they, you know, they, it sounds like in soccer they're using junior clubs to subsidise the top, whilst the AFL, it sounds like the AFL and the NRL do it the other way. Uh, um, so I would look really closely at: shouldn't you be distributing your money to the juniors, not 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 using them as a cash cow <laughs> to support your senior ranks? So that, that's something I look at really carefully. I think with the with the with the code. That's a really great point, mate. Superstars are getting enough money. I do wonder if the um, if the CEOs of the co- codes, and again, not to pick on individuals, but uh, the boards, the management teams, let's make it broader than that. Um, you do wonder, mate. You know, I, I, I often rail against the, the, the match of the round being played starting at 8 o'clock at night, uh, and, and particularly with AFL, which goes even longer than the rugby league or rugby union games. And you think you've, the kids have got to be 12, 13, 14 before they can, you know, reliably, reasonably stay up till 10.30 at night, 11 o'clock at night watching these games. And you kind of think... If I was, you know, if we go back to the, I mean, the league's always been professional, AFL has been too, union was a bit of both. But if you go back to a point in time and say the stewards of the games, the custodians of the games, uh, when, that, when it wasn't a corporatised entity, and you're right that things have improved a lot because of that corporatisation and the, the improvement to the way they think about the game. But if you're the custodian of the game, you'd have it played surely at a time when the kids could watch it. And if it meant slightly less TV revenue and maybe, maybe the superstars get $1.1 million, rather $1.2 million a year, uh, I, I don't know. It, it strikes me that's the trade-off I'd make if I was if I was in charge of a genuine long-term growth of a, of a particular code. Yeah, funny, Scott. When I grew up, 
Aussie rules was Saturday afternoon, 2.20. Yep, yeah, right. Every week. Three, three o'clock for rugby league, but exactly yeah, the same yeah. thing, yeah. Yeah, that yep. tradition. Yeah, look, I think, I mean, I've noticed that uh, everyone wants the AFL grand final in the afternoon and the, the league's been trying to get it as a night like the, like the NRL for years. So I think there is a bit of pushback from fans. I mean, they're not uh, they're not powerless. Uh, and in, in some way, you're right. Um, the clubs used to run the league, and now the league's huge, and they almost dictate to the clubs. It's quite different now, isn't it? And um, that that's sort of been a weakness in rugby union, I think, where they're you know they've got the old clubs running themselves, and then the Blazer Brigade and you know, the different rugby unions. That's true. Yes, exactly. Uh, that run are run like old clubs, aren't they? They're not run by as as business organisations as much, and that's been a. I always thought that was a strength of rugby union, having played it myself. As it was very, you know, very amateur, very clubby. But now they've gone professional. It's been harder, I think. Yeah, I kind of missed it out. Uh, let me ask you about that, actually, before we move off. We've got uh, private equity mobs uh, buying a stake in the All Blacks. Uh, there's been talk about it happening for rugby union as well. Uh, what, what's your thought? You know, a part of me, part of me thinks that bringing some of that, um, as you say, that professionalism to the game is really useful. On the other hand, selling out part of a what is a, a sport and a game, uh, as much as that's an industry these days and a brand and all those kind of words, uh, being sold for private equity. Part of me thinks we're kind of giving up a bit of our collective sports souls in doing that. H- how do you think about the combination of the benefits, the pros and the cons of of partial privatisation of these sports? I don't think you could do it for the national team, but I can see how you do it for clubs. And there's a lot of talk about that because it's been done a lot in rugby union in Britain and Europe. Um, uh, you know Saracens and, and, and so on with that with that with, with that issue. I, I think provided there's reasonable safeguards, is probably going to be going to be uh, probably inevitable. Uh, but um, it's interesting the different models. You know the Green Bay Packers and the NFL have always been owned by the community. You know it was quite different than having the Glazers. You know buy a buy an EPL club or Saudi Arabia or so on. So. So I think I, I I think you're right. There's a, there's a number of different ownership models. You could run it as a mutual, like a super fund or like the co-op, you know, you used to do. Um, but yeah, I've I've heard the in, in my colleagues at the UTS Centre for Sports Business and Society often talk about private equity because they're worried about too many clubs in the Australian market across the different codes. So they're thinking private equity might be a solution. Mate, can I drag you out of out of footy and, and to another part of the athletic and, and sports and economics landscape? That's the Commonwealth Games. A couple of weeks ago, uh, Dan Andrews famously, <laughs> infamously, depending on which side of politics you're on, um, and, and let's get the politics out of it uh, for the most part, cancelled Victoria's uh, bid slash agreement to host the Commonwealth Games. This is gutsy to do um or maybe not i don't know i don't know how it went down with the victorian punters with with the voters but on one hand a gutsy call on the other hand a, a bit of a slap in the face for every other sports administrator and, and frankly government official who wanted to say we won the right to host x and then we're going to stand up and cut the ribbon and, and take all the glory and then say well there's all these great social benefits there's infrastructure and there's community goodwill and there's tourism spending all that kind of stuff I, I'm curious. Just I don't want to load. I won't load the question. I'll just ask you. Um, what are your reflections on on a state that only X number of years before says we want this for all the good things it brings, and then soon after we're cancelling it because none of those things are worth the price we're going to have to pay? 
Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I've been writing a bit about the Commonwealth Games, and well, I was writing a fair bit about the Matildas before uh, before the Cup began, and it wasn't as getting as much traction as it got this week. <laughs> but, funny that. But then I was writing a piece, and then I, I'd written something a while ago about the Commonwealth Games, and so the Sydney Morning Herald got me to write a piece. Would Dan Andrews have cancelled the Women's World Cup? <laughs> bringing, the, bringing the different 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 articles together in a way. Yeah, nice. It's interesting, isn't it? I mean. The problem there was, uh, you know, he said, oh, you know, it will cost, a, it was going to cost, a, you know, one billion, two billion. And then he was said it was going to cost seven. Yeah. yeah. I don't know how he got from one to two to seven, given the <laughs> Something's wrong there, right? Yes. Yeah. Gold cost cost one, one, five. <laughs> Secondly, he had said, oh, we'll take it to the regions. You know, so we've heard for 20 years, Melbourne's the sports capital and we got the MCG and we've got the, the Rod Labour Arena. You know, we've got all. Got the precinct, you know, you heard this for years, and then they bid for the Commonwealth Games and say, We'll take it to the regions where they don't have the infrastructure, you know. And I was I was interviewing Matt Carroll um a couple of weeks ago about the new sort of Olympic model, the new norm, where the Olympic Games you you take it to places where they've got all the infrastructure because you don't want people building new stuff and getting in bidding wars. So in some ways, Dan Andrews was going against the new norm of how you bid for bid for, for for games nowadays. So that was a bit surprising. And I don't know, like it goes beyond economics though, but there's a few people who don't like the Commonwealth because they don't like the British, they don't like the British Empire, they don't, you know, they want to, they use it as a bit of a, uh, you know, a bit of a, a, a sort of, you know, woke sort of cause for the Republicans so on. And the thing that that misses out on is that the, yeah, when I worked at Austrade and we had the Business Club Australia, the sort of schmoozing club around different games, the Commonwealth Games on was pretty good because you had India, you know, on the rise. You had uh, Malaysia, Singapore, Canada. You had quite a few trading partners and also for a lot of the nations of the Pacific, the Commonwealth Games is pretty important. So from a, you know, sports diplomacy, soft diplomacy point of view, I found the Commonwealth Games quite useful and it's the only time you get all those people together to do business deals without China and America and, you know, the big ones in the room, the EU, you know. So, yeah, I think I think we sort of underestimate some of the perhaps the off-field advantages of the Commonwealth Games. So I've got to ask you, mate, uh, if, if Dan and Cordial said, Tim, think about cancelling this thing, it's going to cost me too much money, uh, what, are you, what are you advising him? Well, he, he should have told the Commonwealth Games people. I mean, because he didn't. <laughs> you know, so they got a bit of a shock, right? Mm-hmm. Look, I, th- I think if he knew it was going to cost seven bill, he should have. Yeah, well, I think bidding for it, getting it, and saying it's going to be in the regions before the election, and then saying it costs too much. I, I think the timing's wrong. I think I think I would have advised him to make it in Melbourne, have a few things in Ballarat and Bendigo and Gippsland, but I would have had it most in Melbourne in the precinct where you build the infrastructure. That's what my advice would have been. Don't think he'd listen to my so much like, and no. <laughs> but equally, he could have done that, right? I guess. I guess I'm. I'm still. I'm still surprised that even he, he looks at the blowout, goes, "Oops, made a horrible mistake here." By the way, I think, as you say, uh, I, I'm, I'm hesitant, mate, because I don't want to get in the politics of it, and the, and the people have their own biases. Particularly, Dan is a polarizing figure. Um, 
But you've got to think, if if someone tells you whether it's going to cost you a billion or two and then it's all of a sudden going to cost seven, you're firing half of the bureaucrats who, who gave you some data advice in the first place probably, uh, assuming it's all legit and above board. But secondly, you are, aren't you, saying, well, we can't afford to do all this. We're going to have to wind it back a little bit. It's going to be a smaller Commonwealth Games. Here's how we're going to manage it. We are going to put it in Melbourne only. We might play a couple of games in the regions. Victoria's not that big. Travelling is not... I mean, you know, everyone likes their own backyard, but if you can travel from Ballarat, Bendigo, Geelong, Gippsland to, to watch the games if you want to, right? It's not like it was necessary to, to cancel it outright. You know, the Olympics, they keep adding sports to it, which Matt Carroll was saying makes very expensive and lots of sports. Well, the Commonwealth Games, you're only obliged to have the athletics and the swimming. All right. So different governance structures, Matt Carroll was explaining to me. And, yeah, you're right about the regions. I mean, you know, 1956, Melbourne Olympic Games, Ballarat got the rowing. And my grandpa's house, you can see it in the Olympics book, because they took a picture by Lake Wendereese. So my grandpa said, we said, we're in the Olympics book, you know, we're in the Olympic book because uh, Ballarat did the rowing. I think it would have been great doing it in Melbourne and the regions. I think just giving it all to the regions, I don't know, when you got all that infrastructure in Melbourne, that just seemed to go against the the, the new model, the new norm. Nice bit of uh, state building, if that's if that's your thing, mate. Um, can I can I just t- change tack entirely, entirely, and talk about, ask you about something else? Because you are a prolific writer. I've said to my listeners before, please follow Tim on 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 Twitter and uh, look for where he's writing. Uh, jump on the Airport Economist website. The whole lot of great stuff Tim does. Uh, he's one of the most understandable and and easy to read economists, and one of the best informed, as I said, by his own education by being involved at the at the absolute. Um, epicenter of of politics and economics over the past. Uh, I went. Uh, I'll say. I'll say forty years, mate. Not to not to age you. Yeah, well, you're right. Seasonally <laughs> well, adjusted. Going, exactly. That's right. Seasonally <laughs> adjusted. We're all twenty one. Um, let's let's uh, let, but let's go back there because you wrote recently about uh, the the prospect of maybe it's time for a new uh, wages and prices and wages accord, and that was famously the Hawke Keating government's. Uh, I'll say solution to what was at the time high inflation and trying to be part of a massive, massive reform agenda in the 80s um, that they were they were responsible for. Can I can I get you just for our listeners who maybe are slightly younger than you and I, mate, um, could you could you could you give us from from your seat at the table, which you were right at the middle of this, um, the, the the story of the accord in the early 80s, and then, and then maybe just give us a sense of what you think we could do uh, to address the current problems that have some echoes from, from that time. You might, you, they might be a bit, bit younger than you, Scott, but a lot younger than me. <laughs> but, uh, so, so I mean, to go back to the accord, it really, it really had its um, its origins of the Whitlam government because Whitlam, Whitlam came to power and had some real economic difficulties and there was a lot of very high wages and prices in Australia, a lot of strikes. Bob Hawke was head of the ACTU, why used to work, president of the ACTU. And um, when Hawke... Um, when the Whitlam government got sacked and there was all that stuff with Kerr, the ACTU worked with the Labor Party on when you're going to come back to power, we've really got to have a way of keeping a lid on wages and prices. We can't we can't do it by just by the budget. We can't do it just by the Reserve Bank. We've, we've actually got to have an agreement, an accord, where we say we won't go for the huge wage rises, but we want to have Medicare, superannuation, tax reform, sort of a social wage as a bit of a, if you like, in return for wage restraint. So that was sort of the first accord agreement. And it went very well. I mean, um, Bob Hawke had been ACT president, gets a seat in Parliament, knocks off Bill Hayden, you know, a month before the uh, election and becomes Prime Minister. 
And Ralph Willis, who was a former research officer at the ACTU, as I was, um, you know, becomes Minister for Industrial Relations. So you basically had a lot of the human capital of the ACTU at the ACTU, and then a lot of it at, in the in the in the in the Ministry of the, of the Labor Labor Government. And as things changed, you now as the terms of trade shifted against us, as we had a devaluation, we you know we being the Labor Government, the ACTU adjusted the accord to bring in new provisions. So superannuation came out of the accord. You know there was a a delay of a three percent wage rise, so we could establish superannuation, which just used to be the preserve of quite wealthy people in the public service. Medicare came out of the 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 accord. Um, uh, a lot of the tax changes came out of the accord. Uh, the education and training system that we've got now came out of the accord. So, in some ways, it's saying inflation is no good for workers. It's no good for business. Um, we can have a lower rate of um, you know money wage growth, uh, but we can get all these other things in our pay packet: Medicare, super. And uh, have a much better economy. So that was sort of the accord. That's that's where it came about, and it was very successful. In fact, I interviewed Gough Whitlam and Bob Hawke about it, and um, I remember um, Gough saying, "I said, well, the Hawke government was very successful." And uh, Gough said, "Yeah, Bob Hawke as Prime Minister had the great advantage in that he didn't have to negotiate with Bob Hawke as ACT." <laughs> that helps. That helps. <laughs> So, so the accord. The I think this is really important, mate, because what what it strikes me as, and I, I was an observer from the outside, but you, I said, were on the inside. It, it strikes me as an example of a situation where there was an ongoing problem, which was prices were going up, and, and workers wanted to be wanted to be compensated for those higher prices, but the parties involved knew that to do so would risk a price wage spiral, the idea that uh, more prices mean higher wages, higher wages mean higher prices, and around and around we go. Stagflation. And, and that, yeah, exactly. And that benefits could be measured at, at a, I'll say, a social level, at a national level, in more than just the take-home pay of, of employees. So being able to offset the higher costs with effectively non, non, non-cost non benefits, if you like, the idea of, it's almost like perks at work, right? You know, the employees don't get X percent more to, to cover the cost, but they get Medicare or they get superannuation, they get the other things that come with it um, that, that make it make up for it, if you like, in a, in a non-monetary sense. Is, is that is that a reasonable summary of, of the way the Accord tried to work? Scott, you could have written the Accord document. That's perfect. <laughs> I would have done a horrible, horrible job, but thank you. So let's, let's fast forward to now. You've said, uh, you've written that uh, now might be the time for a new price wage or wage price accord, what what's the rationale for that, and, and what would you have it include uh, to solve some of our current economic challenges? Yeah, I'll run it with Jerome Farrow, who was a former Reserve Bank economist. He's now partner at Allen Consulting. And what we were thinking of is there were certain things that we were going to put in the accord that you know eventually the Labor government lost to Howard. Uh, dental, I mean, because everyone who knows going to the dentist. Very expensive part of your household income. So we thought maybe something on dental. Uh, obviously, childcare costs is something that often people talk about now. And I hate to say it, it's something you know a lot about, but some sort of ta- tax reform package that Jerome was very keen on. And I know this is something that um, you write a lot about, Scott, but um, you know, there's talk of sovereign wealth funds, uh, given what the Norwegians have done you know, with, with some of their resource, uh, resource booms. So... There's also, you know, that also might be, you know, some question of what what what, what we do when there's a uh, resources boom and how we distribute that over education and healthcare and taxation. So, 
So I think that that was sort of the, that was the story we, we put together. I think it's interesting. The ACTU's picked up a bit of this. Uh, I think I was on Twitter with you talking about crisis surveillance and and so on. And just as we were doing that, the ACTU rang me about their their prices gouging inquiry, and um, I said, "Get Alan Fells. You know, he's an infomaniac for publicity." And yeah. uh, you didn't use the word maniac on Twitter, as I recall, Tim. But we'll go with maniac. For yeah. <laughs> But, uh, um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, Alan Farrell's, you know, wrote his PhD on prices and incomes accord at Cambridge and and the original, you know, accord was the prices and incomes accord, you know, so it was about price surveillance as well, the price surveillance authority. So I know the ACTU for the next couple of months is, is running an inquiry into price gouging around the country with Alan Farrell. So Professor Farrell's will be good at, uh, you know, he's the Elliot Ness of, <laughs> price fixing and trade practices, you know, so he'll, he'll do a pretty good job with it, I think. We, um, I, I don't want to disparage any of our current uh, mandarins and bureaucrats, mate, but we had some bloody good ones over the past 20 or 30 years, haven't we? If you think back at some of the people, you've mentioned some already, uh, let's throw Alan Fells into the mix, uh, some Reserve Bank governors as well. We, we were pretty blessed through the 80s, 90s and 2000s with some some very, very high quality people, notwithstanding their, their, their uh, predilection for publicity, as you say. Um there's some some really really smart good quality thinkers. Uh, I think I think of Bernie Fraser. Um, pl- plenty we've kind of had the had the benefit of over that really important reform era. Yeah, one I'd, I'd name probably Martin Parkinson, Ken Henry. You know, I mean, um, uh, very thoughtful just on macroeconomics, not just macroeconomics, but the climate. I mean, interestingly, you know, both Martin Parkinson and Ken Henry's fathers were timber workers. So, and I think Martin's dad was a uh, Timbers worker uh, union official. I think he knew Bob Hawke. And both, so both of them knew about, you know, um, old growth and new growth forests and what do you do with a resource? How do you ensure a resource is renewable? And so I think the fact that um, both Ken Henry and Martin Parkinson have done a lot of thinking about the environment probably comes from uh, from from that, that upbringing. And, Gee, we're, yeah, we, we've had some great public servants in Australia, haven't we? You know, particularly in economics, you know, people that really believe in good public policy and uh, have, have uh, served the country well. As, as I think we're very ser- very well served in World War Two. My, my grandfather worked for Chifley in World War Two, and uh, we had Nugget Coombs and uh, Roll Wilson, and I think they called the Seven Dwarfs, the, the seven the seven public servants that. Uh, advise the government on post-war reconstruction. Yeah, we've got a good story in Australia. A lot of good ones too now. Well, Michelle Bullock, nice to work with at the RBA. I think she's going to prove herself a good governor. Excellent. That's good to hear, mate, because there is a lot to be done uh, by by the Reserve Bank. Let me let me finish if I can, mate, um, by just looking forward a little bit. Um, obviously, you've called for the the um, another wage and incomes accord or something similar to that. Uh, we are talking just a day after unemployment ticked up from 35 to 3.7%. A wonderful, wonderful place to start from. But every job loss is, is, is a tragedy for the individual and does suggest some challenges for the Australian economy. Uh, again, I've asked you to put a lot of hats on today, mate, so I'm going to ask you to do that again. And uh, maybe maybe you can be Treasury Secretary for a day or, or a week or as long as you'd like to be. Uh, but I wonder if you'd, you'd reflect on the current state of the Australian economy. Maybe uh, feel free to make whatever predictions and prognostications you want, but I'm more interested in what you would do or advise the Treasurer to do now for the next 6, 12, 18 months to, to see Australia through what probably is going to be a challenging six or 12 months? Well, I suppose that the, the cost of living is a big 
big issue. So some sort of a court arrangement could could, could look at that. And I think the ACTU is making a good contribution. I, I wouldn't mind seeing a tripartite business union government sort of summit again. I mean, I, I think Albanese would be quite good with the business people. I think he's built up quite good networks there. There's no top end of town sort of remarks that Bill Shorten used to make. So I think <laughs> that's true. I, I, yeah, and ironically, when Bill Shorten had very good relations with employers when he was head of the AWU. So, uh, but his opposition leader kept saying stuff like that. So I, I think that would, that would work. I mean, my major concern is, um, uh, is the environment, you know, going, going too fast on targets. So I think we'll be very, very careful about that. I know that there's, a green revolution. We're putting the green back in the green and gold, and there's all these great renewable energy projects coming on board. And you see it with what Australia's doing overseas. That's great, but um, uh, you got to really manage that transition effectively, uh, and you got to do it with pragmatism, not activism. I think you know. So I'm, I reckon Greg Combe's got a pretty good, pretty important job with the Net Zero Agency. He really does. He really does. Mate, you've been very, very generous with your time again. I doubt this will be the last time we speak on this podcast, if you'd be kind enough to join me again at some other point. I really appreciate your insights into footynomics and, and also into some of the economic challenges and maybe potential economic solutions for Australia. Tim Harcourt, thank you for joining me on The Good Oil. Thanks, Scott. This podcast is hosted by me, Scott Phillips, produced by Ed Gooden and imaged by Link Kelly.